Let's jump into the deep end. Uh, let's talk about the money. How much did you pay Phoenix? I think, if my memory serves me correctly, I think we paid him a total of $8,000. Was it cash? It was cash. It was cash, yeah. When you handed this money over to Phoenix, did he count it? Yeah, he counted it right in front of me. I'm peppering David Weinberg about money because David paid for an interview, a guy named Phoenix. And paying sources is typically a journalistic no-no. It's considered unethical. David's keenly aware of this. For many years, he reported for Marketplace and public radio station KCRW. So over the years, have people asked you to be paid? Never. I've never in my life had a situation where someone asked me to be paid. Ever. And so when Novel, the production company, said to you, Phoenix is going to be paid, what did you think? My first thought was like, oh, you're this kind of journalist. I kind of associate paying for interviews with like tabloid or celebrity journalism where like you're paying a famous person to to get their story exclusively or stuff like that. And that, that always felt like, I mean, it doesn't even feel like journalism to me. It's just like, I mean, I will say if since then I work with these people, they're great. And a lot of those fears were, you know, um, unfounded, but yeah, it just felt like, Oh, you're, you're those kinds of people, which I guess now I am one of. (laughs) Hello everyone. Rob Rosenthal here. I'm the producer of the sound school podcast, the backstory to great audio storytelling. Sound School comes to you from PRX and Transom. David Weinberg is a friend. We've taught together many times. I think he's a great writer. And he has a knack for telling fascinating stories. His most recent podcast is an excellent example. It's produced by Novel, a podcast company in England. And for full disclosure, I should mention, I facilitated a workshop for Novel several months ago. The podcast David reported is called The Superhero Complex, a story about a citizen crime fighter in a costume in Seattle who goes by the name Phoenix Jones. And yes, this is a true story. It's nonfiction. Here's an extended clip from the show. It's late 2009. Ben Fodor strolls into a Seattle comic book store. The Dreaming Comics and Games. He enters a hidden back room behind a bookcase. When he emerges from his secret lair, he's no longer Ben Fodor. As the comic book lovers of Seattle browse the shelves stuffed with Nightwing and Batman comics, an actual costumed crime fighter glides past them and steps out of the shop. Phoenix Jones has a city to save. A few months earlier, before he established his secret changing room, Phoenix was sitting in the same store, chatting to the owner, Aaron, about crime fighting. At that point, he decided that he wanted to continue fighting crime, but he realized that he needed a compelling outfit, one that would make him stand out. And it would take a lot of trial and error to get there. I had a pair of jeans, no shirt, and like a ski mask. Then there was a more ostentatious look. We went all spandex with the Count Chocula hat. Yeah. (laughs) Clearly, this was not a permanent solution. When I first heard about real-life superheroes, I assumed that they modeled their outfits off fictional superheroes because they thought it was cool. But there's actually a practical reason for wearing a flamboyant superhero outfit. It distinguishes you from criminals who might also be wearing a mask. 
If a cop gets called out to a crime and they see a guy in a ski mask, there's a pretty good chance they'll think this is the suspect. And as a superhero, that is something you want to avoid at all costs. So Ben needed a costume that would distinguish him from the criminals he wanted to take down. In some ways, I feel like what happened next was the moment when Ben Fodor really became a superhero. Up until this point, he was just a guy in spandex and a goofy hat trying to stop crime. But his next suit was when he fully embraced the superhero image. We got this replica Batman suit off the internet and like grinded the nipples off because one of those Batman forevers. <laughs> when I grinded the nipples off, I remember that being a conversation. And then we went out there and I had that one for a while and I spray painted the gold V on it. And so the newly minted Phoenix Jones with his freshly spray painted nippleless Batman Halloween costume took to the streets of Seattle. In the comic book version of this story, Phoenix would instantly start kicking ass. But this was not a comic book. This was real life. <laughs> the first six months was just an expose and stupid. For starters, not all of Phoenix's gadgets worked the way he hoped. I was chasing a guy. I think he'd broken into a car. I was like, oh, I'm coming after you. And I pulled out this net gun I just bought. And I pop it off, but I'm running at like super warp speed, right? And the net gun catches wind and blows back and nets me and rolls up. And I land in the side of like a little gutter ditch right on the side of the road. It's been raining, so there's like two inches of water in it, right? And I land belly down. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to drown. So I'm like rolling up, taking breaths and rolling up and taking breaths. At this point, Phoenix feels a pair of hands grabbing his back. He gets forcibly turned over. And there, glaring down at him, is the criminal he'd been chasing. Then, in a decidedly unheroic moment, lying in a ditch and ensnared in his own net, Phoenix gets mugged. He grabs my wallet, <laughs> he punches me in the face. <laughs> and I just lay belly up in this freaking rain ditch. And then finally the cops show up and they're like, what's going on? So I explain the story to them and they're like, oh, we have to take photos for evidence, which is lies. It turns out crime fighting is tougher than it looks. Everything you see in a crime-fighting magazine, it's the pages between the panels you have to learn to live in. You know those little white bars to separate all the comic book panels? That's where the real crime-fighting takes place. That's where all the superhero work really is. Phoenix eventually gets his act together, sort of. Other people join him with their own personas and costumes. There's Midnight Jack, who dressed like a ninja. El Caballero wore a Mexican wrestling mask and a Kevlar helmet. These people and several others were the Rain City Superheroes, a group Phoenix started in 2011. They were do-gooders. Their intent was to help people in trouble. Car problems, muggings, fights, domestic violence, and in some cases, they did help. Over the years, the superheroes' work patrolling Seattle garnered a lot of media attention, plus the ire of the police, who felt Phoenix Jones and the crew were untrained, getting in the way, and doing more bad than good. David told me that Novel reached out to him asking if he'd like to report and host a series about Phoenix. He said yes, and at some point, they told David they had set aside money in the budget to pay Phoenix. So what did it make you want to do? Did you want to walk away from the gig then, or how did you navigate that? No, you know, I never wanted to walk away. I just felt like, well, I, I first I thought about it and I was like, well, I've been in lots of instances where I felt like it would not have been immoral to pay the person I had spent time with. You know, I've done stories with people where I've asked to spend like lots and lots and lots of time with them over months. And so asking for that much of someone's time and then having the complete control over how their life gets portrayed to the public and them having no control over it, there's like a big power dynamic there that has not always felt fair to me. And so 
I could, I totally feel like there are instances where I would have no problem just handing over some money to someone who I spent a lot of time with just in exchange for their time. And so it wasn't like a hard moral line for me. David says Novel transferred $8,000 to his bank account. The payment would cover a three-hour interview and two times in the field recording superhero patrols. David flew to Seattle to report the story, and before he met with Phoenix, he had to get the cash from the bank. Well, turns out he couldn't take out the whole amount. The bank had a limit on how much he could withdraw in a day. Dave got upset right there in the bank. It was his money. Why couldn't he take it out? I have to pay this superhero $2,000 today, you know? And they're just like, I'm sorry, sir, but uh, the policy is like, you know, so... Wait, did you literally say, I have to pay a superhero? Yeah, because this is that was the other thing that really upset me. They asked me what the money was for. They're like, what do you need this money for? And that just felt like so offensive to me. It was just like, you don't get to ask me what how I spend my money. What? Not that I didn't love banks before, but it made me hate them even more. That was only the beginning of David's issues reporting this story, as he explained in the series. In August 2021... I flew into Seattle to finally meet the infamous Phoenix Jones. We'd been texting back and forth, and he'd agreed to meet, so I booked a hotel for a few days. On August 21st, he texted me saying he was free later that day. So I asked when was good for him, but he didn't respond. In fact, he didn't respond to any of my texts that day or the next or the next. While I was hanging around waiting for Phoenix to get back to me, I interviewed a few other Seattle superheroes and former members of his crime-fighting team, the Rain City Superheroes, including one guy who'd known Phoenix since high school. And they all told me variations of pretty much the same story. You can't trust anything that comes out of the guy's mouth. He was charging people money per month for medical insurance that the teams never saw. He's got a drug problem, a gambling problem. He's been disgraced from everyone else who's ever been on the team. He's a narcissist, he's a sociopath. He's just not a, he's not a good dude. If just one of Phoenix's former teammates had been disgruntled, I think I would have been reluctant to judge him based on their falling out. But everyone I talked to had a similar story, which made it hard to dismiss their assessment of his character. But I wanted to hear Phoenix's side of the story before I drew my own conclusions about him. Phoenix never showed. David left Seattle empty-handed. A month later, Phoenix reappeared by text. He apologized. They agreed to try again, so David flew back to Seattle. The night before the first interview, Phoenix called at 10 p.m. He basically said, hey, why don't you come over? Let's get to know each other before the official interview. David said, sure. So Phoenix said he would text his address. Well, instead, a few minutes later, he called again. He said he'd rather pick David up at the hotel rather than texting the address. David thought that was weird. He was going to learn where Phoenix lived anyway, but okay. And then I was like, oh, is this all a plan to like get me out of my hotel room and then he's going to break into my hotel room and steal the envelope of cash? David told me he found the best place in his room to hide the money and then he went outside in the rain at 1130 at night and waited. Phoenix canceled. I think going into it, which is not ideal as a journalist, I had a pretty strong, uh, maybe dislike is the right word, but I just... I didn't trust him. I thought I was going to be getting into a situation where he was going to be really combative and it was going to be like an awkward interview in that sense. And so my fears ranged from like, oh, he's going to be a jerk to like, oh, he's going to rob me so he can get his fix. All those thoughts went through my head at some point before I actually met him. 
Now, to be clear, journalists paying for interviews, it's not unheard of, which is to say Novel is not the only company that has paid someone for access. But since it's not a common practice and it can have an impact on the relationship between a reporter and a source, David says he and Novel decided it would be best to mention it in the podcast. I think it was Brooke Gladstone that said it. Maybe, but it was something like transparency is like the new objectivity or something like that. Like that idea that like, which I kind of subscribe to. I'm not sure that I believe in like objectivity. Um, but I think you can be transparent in a way that that in some ways is like more useful than like the idea that you're pretending to be objective. Um, yeah, I firmly believe like lay all your cards on the table. All of these stories made me wary of Phoenix. And I was upset because the only reason Phoenix had agreed to do an interview with me was because we were paying him several thousand dollars. I've been a journalist for 15 years and I've never paid a source for an interview. It's generally considered unethical. And I understand all the arguments against it. But I'm also aware that as a journalist, I have the power to shape how the world sees Phoenix. And he will have to live the rest of his life with the consequences of how I portray him. Meanwhile, I not only get to walk away from the story when I'm done, I get paid. Lots of people get paid to make this story. That imbalance of power doesn't always feel fair to me. And I see a valid argument for paying people for their time. The issue I had with Phoenix was that after hearing all these stories from his former teammates and from people around Seattle, I felt uneasy about rewarding him. But I also felt that Phoenix deserved to tell his side of the story. And the only way that was going to happen was for me to hand him an envelope full of cash. Have you heard the phrase paycheck journalism? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what this is, right? Yeah, it's the idea that uh, the, the reporter, the, the news agency, the producers, the production company, they pay people for their time. Right. And you're right. Historically, it seems like it's one of those things that, generally speaking, has more to do with tabloid journalism, you know, sensationalized journalism, yellow journalism, whatever you want to call it. Well, the irony of paycheck journalism is, and maybe this is one of the reasons I find it gross, is that oftentimes I feel like the people who are getting paid are the people that least need money. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if you're going to pay someone, like pay the, you know, pay the people that don't have anything that we're like, ask, you know, if we're doing a documentary about like homelessness and you ask to spend like months documenting someone's life, like to me, that person deserves to be paid more than like some celebrity who's like basically just leveraging their, you know, their celebrity status to get paid for some essentially a piece of PR. Yeah. I wrote down a list of reasons why typically you don't pay someone for an interview. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to run them by you. So the first item is it changes the dynamic. What is typically an unencumbered exchange of information, mm -hmm. the participant gives it freely and willingly, and it turns it into a business transaction. Hmm. And the interviewee becomes not a source, but an employee. I, I think it's true. I think I did feel that to some degree. I mean, I've never been, you know, I've never been in a situation where there was a clock on the interview. Like, I mean, I've had lots of hard outs with people where they're like, I have to leave in an hour. But with Phoenix, it was like, you paid for three hours. And so there's this other dynamic where I, I think maybe the money did sort of corrupt me in a sense that like Phoenix was very gracious in that, you know, we did our three hour interview, but then he had to go to work. 
And he was like, look, there's still a lot more I want to cover with you. I will give you more time. I'll, I'll still meet with you, even though technically we have, have gone over what you paid for. And that like really, that made me see him as very generous and not obsessed with money. And like, I think it endeared me to him in a way that wouldn't have if there hadn't been money. It was like, oh, I was like, oh, Phoenix is a good guy. Like he's willing to like spend more time with me than we paid for. And that like that was a real way I thought about Phoenix footage. I've never thought about a source before. And and sometimes I think like maybe that the fact that that was part of our early interaction, I came to trust him more than I should have. But all those those were all feelings and and ways of thinking about our relationship that were new to me because of the money. Here's another point. Now that the interviewee is a kind of employee, they may give you what they think you want to please you because you've paid them. Well, I think. I don't buy that. I think Phoenix has, Phoenix is incredibly charismatic. He's a great storyteller. He's very media savvy. He knows what he's doing and it has nothing to do with the money. Like he knows how to charm me. He knew how to like, he knew the stories that I would like. He knew how to tell them well. Like he was just so professional about things that I don't, I think the money didn't really change that at all. Next point in my little list here, uh, as soon as I start reading this out loud, I'm like, I did not write this to say it. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's a mistake. Anyway, the next point on my list is, conversely, if a media outlet has paid for something, they're going to want to recoup those costs. So the thinking is, a story may be altered or embellished and sensationalized in order to attract more readers or viewers or listeners, etc. I mean, I, that sounds like nonsense to me. I mean, the, the amount of money they paid Phoenix was a tiny drop in the bucket compared to what the production costs on the show were. And I came, I came away actually really respecting and appreciating the way that they edited that story. And so I did not get the sense that... I mean, I think there were definitely things that they wanted to put in there that were like more sensational or it's not how I would say it. And it w I would not have presented it in that sort of way but then I changed it. So I, I don't agree with that in this instance. I think everyone just sort of like used their sensibilities to edit the story as opposed to the financial stuff. Yep. Two more points that I uh, found in my research. Uh, the Society of Professional Journalists is against paying sources. And one of the reasons they offer is that people may stage or invent news in order to make money. <laughs> Well, that's funny because that's one of the accusations that people made about Phoenix was that he staged these events that he claimed he did to get new attention. So Phoenix was doing that, into, if it's true, if he did in fact stage these fights or whatever it was, he was doing that independently of getting, he was doing that long before anyone was offering him any money. And the last point, also from SPJ, they say that a reporter may be less likely to seek other details of a story that might conflict with what they've paid for, thus making what they've paid for less valuable. I mean, that that make I, I find that such a bizarre, because it's like, to me, finding out, being able to point to something that Phoenix said on tape and say, this is a lie, is makes the tape more valuable. It's like, if I can show that Phoenix is a liar because I did my work and I have proof that it's, like, that to me is where the value is. Like, Anyone can tell you all kinds of stuff, and if you can't prove that it's true, then you're just kind of like, okay, well, we have to assume that's true. So I would, 
I'd say that's a crazy argument to me because it's like, to me, some of the most valuable moments that I have on tape of Phoenix are him saying things that I was able to point to later and say, this is not true. Phoenix always has an answer for everything. He always manages to come up with a reasonable explanation for why he is right and everyone else is wrong. When I spoke to Phoenix's former team members, they all brought up his relationship with publicity. Here's El Caballero. A lot of it, I felt like Jones's heart was for protecting people, but then there was also this part that I saw was actually his ultimate self at that time, which was publicity. Midnight Jack told me that the Rain City superheroes initially started out courting the media for strategic reasons. It was a way to get a lot of attention on crime trends, to call attention to problem areas that the police were not enforcing. But as things blew up, that changed. Ben was so hooked on the attention, on the media following and the celebrity status and things like that, that it was a problem. So then he started having us fucking, not necessarily fake footage, but kind of stage shit. When we talked about his relationship with the cameras, Phoenix never admitted to staging patrol videos. But it was an accusation I kept hearing. Cabby told me once that you guys were doing some media interview. And you started making stuff up, and he was like, dude, that didn't happen. And you leaned over and you said, hey, man, the history is told by the victors, you know? Oh, no, I didn't. I leaned over and I said, history is written by the winners. Right. So you were just making stuff up? Yeah, 100%. Phoenix even clarified for me. The story Cabby had been talking about was when the Rain City superheroes were on Good Morning America. They're like, what's your biggest crime you've ever stopped? And I was like, arson. Like, Can you give me some details? I'm like, can't give me details. Phoenix couldn't give any details because there was no arson. Like, we didn't have a lot of credentials at that moment, but we're on Good Morning America, and we're about to go on TV, and I was like, fuck it. Yeah, straight up. And I don't feel bad about it. I wouldn't take it back, and I would do it again. If you admittedly just, like, make stuff up to the media, like, how do I know well, what you're saying is true? I wasn't admittedly making... Hold on. If there's a way for me to tell a story that makes it sound better and doesn't change the core facts that are on a police report, I will probably do that. To Phoenix, he's just giving the world what it wants. I don't want to do interviews. I don't want to talk to these people. I don't like you. I want to stop bad people from doing bad things. And I want to make people do it themselves and understand it. But the government and the world we live in would not let me. So I gave you what you wanted. You wanted a superhero because that's what you think what I was doing was, so I gave you a superhero. Check. But no point in any of this was this my like idea or goal. It's these types of statements from Phoenix that I have a hard time believing. But I wouldn't necessarily say that Phoenix is lying when he says them. I think he probably believes them to be true. And it's certainly true that as a black man trying to fight crime on the streets of America, the publicity provides him with a level of protection that any of his former team members who were white might not have needed. But I find his unwillingness to admit that he enjoyed being a celebrity as a kind of dishonesty. For what it's worth, I think Phoenix liked all the attention. And not just because it made it easier for him to catch criminals. But one thing does ring true in what Phoenix is saying here. He spends his whole life attempting to live up to a particular ideal of a superhero. And that's a lot of pressure. And not everyone has the same idea of what a superhero is. When those interpretations clashed, things got messy. Other than the payment, David told me he reported the story like he would any other story. For instance, Phoenix had no editorial input, never saw a script. No, God, no, no. 
Just as he would for any other story, David shared by email a slew of accusations made by colleagues and friends, and that gave Phoenix an opportunity to respond. Phoenix didn't. If anything, David thinks because Phoenix was paid, he was tougher with his questions. In other circumstances, I would have been more afraid to anger him. You know what I mean? I, w- I probably would have like front-loaded the interview with all the stuff I needed that wasn't going to get touchy. But because I knew that he needed the money, I would I went a little harder on him because I was like, he's going to come back for the second interview. He's going to sit down with me. I know he is because he needs the money. You sound sold. Uh, I have to be. I did it. You know, I'm... <laughs> I don't feel bad about it if that's, you know, I don't feel like I crossed some line as a journalist that that uh, I shouldn't have. Um, I mean, hopefully the SPJ doesn't kick me out of the club, but like, I'm I'm good with it. I'm good with the way things went down. I've made my peace with it. I, I you know, I'm, I'm never going to like, I don't feel like I have this new tool in my journalist belt that I can use. It's more just like, if I ever get into another situation where I have to pay a source, I'm okay with it, and I, I have some experience now, so I have a sense of like how I would navigate it. But you know, it hasn't changed the way I've done any of the projects after that. But the question is like, what am I going to do going forward? You know, now that I've broken the seal and I've paid someone, and I like, am I now going to just start paying people for their time because I think I should? I don't know. That's like that's where I feel like the ethics get messy. It's like if you now believe something and then you don't do it, doesn't that make you more unethical? I don't know. One other thing that occurred to me while talking to David is this. He was paying someone who lied to him from time to time. You can hear David's thoughts about that at the post for this episode at transom.org. Can I read something to you that made my day? Quote, listen for the punk rock, for the crickets, for the quirks, and not only that, listen for great stories and hear from the people who make them. That is such a marvelous review of the Sound School podcast at Apple Podcasts. Thank you very much for that. You got something you'd like to say about this show? Well, tell us. Good or bad, dart or laurel, post something at Apple or tweet me at SoundSchoolPod. This is the Sound School podcast from PRX and Transom. Genevieve Sponsler at PRX and Jay Allison at Transom comb through my scripts. They are my Radio City superheroes. Thank you. Thanks also to WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, where I record my narration. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. From PRX and Transom.org.